0: I'd like you to turn once again to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and those familiar verses 4 and 5 and we'll continue on the theme, the enemy within. There's a reason why in some areas too often we have trouble with God's way. There are reasons why we're angry, there's reasons why we pout. There are reasons why we don't want to trust God. There's reasons why we're afraid. Not everybody is. Not everybody's the same way, but everybody has a unique area or three or 10. It seems like they just struggle with. It's a constant struggle with something spiritual. And I'm titling the message, The Enemy Within, because that's what it is. The enemy has gained a strong hold. At some point in our lives early on lately but the enemy has been able to gain a hold of some area of your life to prevent you in that area from trusting God and it bothers us and it should we get convicted about it but we have to deal with it we have to deal with it our scripture tells us in 2nd Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5 for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And this, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Because in every attack of the enemy, and I'll keep emphasizing this through the series, in every attack of the enemy, He begins with the mind. He starts with the mind at some point, and it's in the area of the mind that we have to deal with what we're going to do or how we're going to do it. We convince ourselves a lot of times that we can't when we can. God wouldn't give us something to do that we can't do, but we convince ourselves that we can't because something, something about the way we're living, our choices we've made in life has convinced us that we can't and therefore we oppose God. Now the word stronghold, as I mentioned last week, has to do with a fortress, and the fortress has the great walls that were hard to scale. The enemy would have a hard time overtaking a high-walled city like Jericho. You're pretty safe inside of that, but the point is that a stronghold is that which opposes God and keeps God out. And it's something that has been erected or assembled in your heart or your life that really does keep God out. Sometimes it's an opinion. Sometimes it's an excuse. Sometimes it's your philosophy of life. But it's something that you lean on to keep from doing what God says. And it holds you. It captures you. It's called a stronghold. And these strongholds are these high things that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. God said, this is the way walking in it. Something says, well, I'm sure that's the right thing to do and that's a good thing to do, but I don't think I'm ready for that or I don't think I want to do that or I don't see any value in that. Why would I do that? Well, that doesn't seem to make any sense. People say that about religion all the time. Even though God has chosen the foolish things to confound the wise, we look at people who are walking God's way and think how foolish that is. This faith stuff is so foolish. It doesn't look like it's working for anybody. Well, why would I want to listen to that? And something is built on the inside of you that opposes that. Sometimes in your teen years when, you know, you're most subject to many, many temptations, and you build up walls, and these walls are called strongholds, they keep you from enjoying God and from having peace in this life. They really do. Now, we've been given weapons. We're told many times in the New Testament, not only about our enemy, but about our weapons. They're mighty, and they're multiplied. There are many of them. We got swords and shields, we got the word, we got a lot of things to fight with. But if you don't put those things together, if they don't connect in your heart, they'll never be useful to you. It's hard to fight with something you don't even know you have. And so that's why we're here, that's why we teach, that's why we study, that's why we learn, so that God can enlighten us to not only know how to live this life, but how do we deal with our weaknesses and our problems and our flaws that seem to constantly overtake us? It seem like there's certain sins that just constantly beset us, hold us back. We seem to have so many flaws and failures. Well, the message is that this enemy within has to be defeated. The Bible said we're not to give place to the devil. Now, that's how he comes in. How can the devil gain a stronghold in somebody's life? Well, he gains an entrance. If the Bible says in Ephesians four twenty-seven, we mentioned last week, that we're not to give place to the devil, it obviously means that you can. Nobody can do that for you, you do that. It's an entrance into your life that you are okay with, that you allow, because in 1 Peter chapter five, these are all familiar scriptures, our adversary, the devil, He goes about like a roaring lion. He's looking for somebody that he can devour. He can't just devour anybody he wants to, or we would all be devoured. But he finds those people who are subject to his suggestions and his opinions and his thoughts and his wiles. And he approaches them and begins to appeal to that weakness. And it's all so he can get in there and build a wall up and keep God from having control of your life because his desire is to control your life because when he does, he begins his way of killing, stealing, and destroying, and making your life at the end as miserable as he can. To make you one day sit down and think about how wasted your life is. A lot of people can't live with that. But he starts at an early age. You can't tell he's doing it and then one day you realize you've come to nothing in your life. You've turned God away from your life. You've turned goodness away from your life. You've rejected your family. You've rejected everything decent and proper. Now look at you, what do you have now? And there's some dark figure laughing his head off because you were so vulnerable and you were so easy. That's what the devil does. Like a roaring lion, he goes about looking and seeking for those whom he can devour. These are the seducing spirits and doctrines of demons that the Bible talks about. They try to lure you and draw you away from God, from your loyalty to God and from being faithful to the things you're taught to something else. It's a seductive spirit. You're a spouse to Christ. He wants you to be drawn away from that. But this is what the devil does. This is his work. He can't do that to everybody, but he does it enough that many, the Bible says, will in the last days leave the faith. They won't leave religion, but they'll leave God's way and establish their own way. And the Bible speaks about that, that they will give heed to man's fables instead of the word of God because man makes it easier than God does. And these walls get built up. And all these questions, well, why would I want to do that? Well, that doesn't make sense. Well, that's dumb. How could we? And on and on and on. And this is the devil's way of getting in to destroy us. Now, the Bible says the devil's called a tempter. This is what we said last week. The devil's called a tempter. And the work of the tempter, again, is to tempt you, to give you something to think about, that if you think about it enough, What does the Bible teach? As a man thinketh, so is he. So he gives you something to think about. Something that maybe is appealing to you. Maybe something you know, well, I don't think that's right. But he gives it to you to think about. He can't control you unless you give place to him. And he gives you something to think about. He gives you something, besides what God said, he gives you an alternative, something else. And he makes you feel like, you know, you're smart enough to know the difference and you know, you're all right. I mean, after all, God knows you're sincere and he gives you a new theology, a new way of looking at things. And you depend on man instead of God. It's an ongoing story, but the tempter, Paul said this, and this is the danger of successful temptations. He said in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, he said to the church of Thessalonica, Every place that Paul went and poured his heart into and got established, the devil came right behind him and tried to tear it apart. And he was working on this church, and so he wrote to them, and he said, you know, when I could no longer forbear, I sent unto you a certain man. He said, I need to know about your faith, lest you have been tempted and our labor be in vain. Now, I don't know how you think or how you feel about that, but here's what Paul said. I spent a lot of time preaching to you, teaching to you, laboring before God for you. Now, if somebody can talk you out of what you've been taught and you follow something else, then I wasted all my time because whatever I taught you won't work for you. You can't mix God and the world, and expect God to bless both. It doesn't work like that. There is only one way that's right, and it's God's way. And the world hates us to say that. How exclusive you make yourselves to be. We're not exclusive, God is. And we want to be like him, so what we're believing for, is we're going to be like Jesus, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, and so forth. But Paul said, if the tempters come along, If somebody is talking you out of what you should believe or has talked you out of what you believe, then our labor is in vain. Turn to Galatians again. Galatians chapter three. Listen to this. I thought this was amazing. We've read it before. We're all familiar with this. Galatians chapter three and verse one. Again, another church where Paul had spent a lot of time taught a lot, labored amongst the people, anointed and so forth. And yet after he leaves, somebody comes after him, another group, they come after him to destroy what he was teaching. Paul warned the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, a select group of godly men. He said, I know this, that after my departing, that grievous wolves shall enter in among you and scatter the flock. The devil never ceases to disrupt a body of believers. There's always somebody that is subject to the devil's work to come along and be disruptive or malcontents or something. It never stops. Every time there was a, a problem in a church and the problem leaves and we go, whew, it's just a matter of time till another one comes or another person is being used of the devil. They wait in line to be used. They all have excuses and reasons and all of that, all of them do. I've been doing this for a long time and there's no end to this. So we have to deal with what we have to deal with, preach the word in season or out of season and go on because this is the only way we're gonna make it is to be enlightened and to be hold of that plow and let God bring us through. But concerning the tempter, Galatians chapter three, verse one, he said, oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Isn't that amazing? How could that be? Could that happen here? I mean, how do you know you sitting here haven't been bewitched by me? How do you know? Maybe I'm such a clever talker and smooth talker (laughs) that you've been bewitched and don't even know it. But I can tell you this, don't believe it because I said it. Don't believe a word I said. I'm not gonna lie to you, but you gotta find that out for yourself. You believe what the Bible says. That's your only hope. God put men in the church to teach people, but they're still men. And we must search the scriptures to see if what men say is true. And if it's true, we praise God for the truth. We thank God for the men, but God gets the praise. Now he said, oh foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Notice that you should not obey the truth. Now this whole little series is about that. The enemy on the inside has one major goal in your life, is to turn you away from the truth. That's what strongholds are. They are designed with your permission. To keep you from walking with God. Whatever the devil can do. To turn you away from the truth. To turn you aside into something else. That is exactly what he does. Bewitched just means that you have been misled by pretenses. Somebody, not God, somebody not inspired of God, has given you a version of Scripture that probably appeals more to your human thinking than what God says, and with enough skillful talk, most people will believe what a man tells him, especially if he's educated. They will believe what he tells them instead of what they can plainly read in the Scripture themselves. Go back to the left a little bit, three books. Look at Romans, at the end of Romans chapter 16. Look at verse 18. These are many of the warnings that we have in the scriptures. For they that are such, and who are they? Well, those which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. Those who say something in a way differently than the Bible says it. And it's disrupting your thinking and and your loyalty and your allegiance to God. He said, for they that are such serve not whom? They serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly." and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Deceive the hearts of the simple. Can that happen to you? See, it depends on how alert you are to your greatest need in life, and that's spiritual, which is at this moment a time that God gives us to think about it corporately as a group. Hopefully if you're alert and you're watchful, we put it that way, if you're sober and watchful and you're paying attention and you're counting on God by his spirit to illumine truth to you so you can know it, then it'll be established in your heart and whatever has been a stronghold in your heart will be brought down. Because if it doesn't speak according to these words, if what you're thinking is not in harmony with the word, you'll pull it down. You say, I'm not believing that way no more. I'm not letting that rule me anymore. I've been deceived by that. And you begin to change. You begin to walk in newness of life. You turn away from the old and you begin trusting in the new things that God is telling you. But this business of being deceived, if you go back to Galatians, is so easy. It's so easy to be deceived because so many people are just religious. They're just not careful about how they live and what they believe. They attach themselves to a system of belief. methodist Baptist, down the Christian church I was in, you just attach yourself to a system and you sort of count on the system to be all right without really even knowing what so much the Bible says. But knowing what a system says. My dad was a Catholic. That was his life. He was a Catholic faith. He didn't know what it was, but he was counting on it. That's how easy it is to deceive people who want to be deceived. You mislead them. They get bewitched. Their mind is not set on the things of God, but on a system of, of man. And they become loyal to that. And if you preach anything besides that system, they will get rid of you. That's how the devil destroys people spiritually. And it happens in mass with millions and millions of people, I'm afraid. Galatians 4. Galatians chapter 4, again, I mentioned this a while ago, but let me say it again. Paul said to those who have been bewitched and were running well, but have, uh, they're not running well now, he said, you know what? I'm afraid of you. Why? Lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. He said down the 15th verse, he said, I tell you the truth. I speak the truth to you, and now I become your enemy. Now I'm the cause of your present pain, and I speak the truth. The enemy has gained an entrance and established you, and the truth hurts, and you don't want to hear it because the old was better than the new. So it isn't easy. It isn't easy anywhere with people that have been deceived or bewitched, it isn't easy to turn them around because not everybody wants to turn around. Some people like their sin. Years ago, I heard an evangelist say he'd been in Africa, been there and labored there for a long time. I mean, labored there. And he finally came to the conclusion, he said, these people love their sin. They don't want to get rid of their sin. They don't mind you preaching. They love the way you preach. You sound good. And, oh man, I like the singing and the preaching and They're loyal, they come to church all the time, but they don't want to get rid of their sin. They love their sin. Your labor is in vain. Because as long as a man loves his sin and will not turn away from it, I don't care what you say. They're just religious people who are sermon tasters and they don't want to get right. And you may think they're right because, well, look how many are here and look how many are here loyally and consistently. Look how many seem to be participants. But if you look at their lives, they're controlled by something that's not God. Of course, we you start talking like that, you're judgmental, and I know, I know. But the fact of the matter is, preaching the gospel and receiving the gospel and living the gospel isn't easy. We're in a war, and somebody wants your soul. He wants to destroy it. He wants to corrupt you. And whatever he can do along the way with your family, he wants that too. One more verse and then we will get to start. James chapter one. Remember this one too last week. Verse 14. But every man is tempted. Every man is tempted. Now listen, temptation is not a sin. All right? To be tempted is not a sin. It's a part of your testing in life. But there's a way of speaking of being tempted as saying that when temptation is successful and you have succumbed to the temptation or yielded to it, but Jesus was tempted in Hebrews four and verse 15, it says, we have not a high priestess and I can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the devil is a tempter, he tempted Jesus. He tempted all of us, he's no respecter of persons, but nobody has to sin because you're tempted. Just because it looks good and you're, you got all these feelings about, doesn't mean you have to yield to it. If you resist the devil, he'll flee. But oh, it's so comfortable, it's so fun at the moment to yield. But I'm telling you, folks, a couple years down the road, you see what he does to you. I mean, trashes your life. You feel in hopeless and helpless. You can't do anything about it. No, that's the work of the devil. It seems so good at the beginning, but it winds up so bad. So he said in James chapter 1, verse 14, he said, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. You allow that. You allow this. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth sin death. That's two sobering verses in the book of James. Nobody is going to live in this world and not be tempted. As a Christian, just about everything you're ever going to hear is going to be challenged. You're going to be given a substitute and alternative. The devil doesn't want you to get excited about it. Just be complacent and just watch and listen. Don't do anything. And he wants to subdue you. Then he wants you to be a sermon prognosticator. You know, well, I don't know about that. What would you think about it? You know, and here you are. 30 years later, you're dead on a hammer. You're hammered dead spiritually. Been in church your whole life. You haven't changed in 30 years. The devil does that. There's an enemy that so settles us down that we're no longer either interested or excited about spiritual things. But we are religious. We know to go to church, and we know we should listen. But as far as any effect of all of that, of the indwelling Christ having his way and bearing his fruit, it's a war. It is a war. I mean, it's a war that we all face and we all have to deal with. But remember, a man is tempted when he is drawn away. And he's enticed. He is deceived. He is misled, but he likes it. Seems so good. And I'm not the only one now doing it. And he leads you a place, most of the time, where you can't get out. Many a parent has led their children into activities and things and places they never got out of. They got snared and caught, bogged down, lived that way and died that way. I sound like I'm real so I am. I can't tell you how serious this whole message is. I mean, we don't live long in this world. We're not here for a long time. But while we're here, God has a purpose and a reason for us being here. I mean, we're not here just to go to church. We're to have some effect in some way on this earth. If I've left it out. I'll just mention it again. We've neglected the idea of witnessing to the lost world. We've gotten full of ourselves and full of personal goodness at the neglect of witnessing and trying to win the lost. That's a great part of the gospel. The reason I used to study, when I first got saved, the reason I spent so much time studying is so I could answer questions that people would ask me about the Bible I couldn't answer. I wanted to know. I didn't know anybody could teach that, so I had to study that. Got interested in the study, and then that just made me more sure about what I believed so I could answer more questions and and more accurately tell the lost about Christ that's a part of our life that is a part of our life but the devil wants to entice us he wants us to get in a quiet place and settle down you're all right hey you, you don't have to do that there's people out there that do that but see they don't know anything they're not very deep in the Lord so uh, you know you need to get deep it's good to be deep as long as you don't get heady and high-minded and pride yourself in how much you know and how much others don't know. So this enticement, this allurements, these strongholds, these bewitching moments, these defeating, painful moments, all of this is the work of the devil. Now let me show you some notable temptations. We're talking about the temptations and the tempter. Let's go with the very first temptation in the Bible this morning just to show you how the devil operates. Turn to Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. That's back in the clean pages. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, we shall not eat, neither shall we touch it, lest we die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, and your eyes will be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Having said that, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave it to her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, what do you see here concerning what we're talking about, this war within and the tempter and the roaring lions, seducing spirits? We have here the presence of the devil on the earth. We wonder sometime, how did he get here? Well, he was cast out of heaven. You can read about that in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, those two chapters. Well, in Ezekiel, it's how the devil was cast to the ground because he wanted to exalt himself above God. He wanted to rule, and he was cast to the earth. He prided himself in his beauty. He was the anointed cherub that covereth. I mean, he was quite an angel, I guess. And he was cast to the earth. And he was present on the earth, of course, when the temptation came. And wanting to rule and wanting to master another person's life, he comes to the woman. Girls don't take this wrong, but she is a weaker vessel. That's just the way it was made. I know, I know, I know, I know. I know, male chauvinism, I know, I know. But he came to her and he said, Eve, has God said that you could enjoy all the fruits here? She said, well, we can eat in the fruit of the garden, but with that tree there, we can't eat of that. And she said, we can't touch it. I don't remember God saying you can't touch it. But she said, we can't eat of that fruit lest we die. Now here comes logic and reason that causes most, all people who turn astray, this is why they turn astray. Because somebody logically, reasonably, somebody with a bit of light says, die, (laughs) you won't die. See, here's the problem, Eve, you won't die but you'll be wise like God, and he doesn't want any competition, especially from a woman. Now, I'm making that up, you know that. I mean, he doesn't want any competition, you'll be wise. Now, she starts thinking. She starts pondering with her mind that I would be wise. I've never heard that before. Wise, you mean like God? Well, yeah. How do you say this? He said, your eyes will be open and you shall be as God's. You will be the master of your own destiny. You don't need God to tell you how to live anymore. You're smart enough now that you're wise to do it your way. And your way is as good as his way. After all, I'm just saying. That's the way the devil comes. And people think. You start thinking. See, here comes the temptation." The tempter has simply made a suggestion. Your mind is entertaining something that is different from what God said. See, he said in chapter 2 and verse 17, he said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die. That's what he said in Genesis 2, 17. You will die. Now, he's not going to change that. But the devil said, you won't die. See, it's a contradiction. But it's a sensible contradiction because she begins thinking, why, if everything God made is good, then why would something good cause my death? She starts thinking out of the box. She starts thinking on a person who doesn't want God to master their life. She starts thinking like, well, you know, uh, why would that be wrong? I mean, if God is so good, they say today, if God is all that you Christians and Bible thumpers say he is, then why are there so much death and corruption and awful agonizing people and moments and awful stuff in the world? I mean, if God is good, why is all of this happening right on his earth? I wouldn't do that if I was God. We start thinking like that, and then we bring a sentence against God. God's not fair. This is not right. And we hear Christians say all the time, well, that's not fair. Because we see God not as God, but we are equal ourselves with God and we look at him, we think, if I was God, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't allow that to happen if I was God. Say, well, if God is so good, why does he let that happen? And a lot of people think like that and so they hold back. Well, now, wait a minute. All this talk about blessings and goodness, how do I know he will? I mean, While he could bless and give us and heal us, uh, how do you know he will? He may not want to. I mean, after all, look at the world. Start thinking like that. And you forget that when God made every human being, he gave every human being a will, the power of volition, the ability to make choices. And the choices you make is going to depend on what you give your mind and your thoughts to. And the devil is waiting to give you the wrong ones. And God seems so difficult and so hard and so senseless. Well, how could that be? Why would you lay hands on somebody sick and then how could it be they just get healed? That doesn't work. Born again, you mean you go back in your mother and you come out again? That's the way he thinks. That's just natural thinking. And a natural mind cannot receive the things of the spirit. The things that God says don't make sense to people who are not in harmony, in league, or in touch, or in favor with God. So the devil says to Eve, you'll be wise. You'll be like a God. You won't need God. You can be a God. You can determine your own destiny, and after all, who's to tell you that your loving choices are wrong? Who's to tell you that your sincere choice to do something is wrong just because the Bible said that that's not the way you should do it? I mean, come on. You start thinking like that. We call it humanism or liberalism if you want to use that. You start thinking that way. Listen to what else he said. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, now she had seen it a lot, but she had never seen it before like the devil was showing it to her now. Hey, that's not a bad looking tree. That looks pretty good. It was pleasant to the eyes. Pleasant to the eyes. Boy, she's a good looking gal. Ain't she? Look at that guy. Wow. Boy, I'd look good driving one of them. What's it cost? You got a card? You can get one. Well, that's not the way God said to get it. Come on, now think right. And people start thinking wrong. I mean, they make fun of what God said. Like I said last week, being out of debt for a lot of people is just foolish thinking. I mean, how could you have anything in this life? Well, what about God? What did God promise? What did he say? Ah, See, you've got a stronghold ruling out his way because you want it your way because that's what a little God would do. You make your own little rules. So she saw the tree was pleasant, a tree to be desired to make one wise. And when she was fully enticed, as James 1 said, when she was enticed, she took the fruit and she ate it and handed it to Adam. I guess he was standing there beside her and he ate it too, and they both died. We're dying today because of them. Their death is our death. Paul wrote in Romans, for by one man's sin, many were made sinners, and by one man's Jesus, one man's righteousness, many will be made righteous. That's the way it is, so we're all lost. He said, we're all in sin. We need a savior. And Jesus today to this religious crowd, Jesus today is nothing more than going forward in a church, maybe getting baptized or sprinkled or whatever they do, and uh, taking your seat in church and working at social goodness because that's what socially good people do. They go to church. It's Jesus. He's not much of your life. And when you preach Jesus, people get offended that you would dare tell us that we have to do that or we can't live this or we can't have that. His way is the only way. Because there's that little God mentality that I know what I believe and I don't need anybody to tell me what to do, whether with my body, my funds, or my life. And we begin to live as rebels. Because that's what a rebel is. A rebel is a little God. A rebel is a little controller of one's little destiny. A rebel is one who has established a stronghold that he will not be ruled by God, but he will be ruled by what he thinks, or she thinks, is right. And you become a slave to sin, because James says when you're enticed and you yield to sin, it brings death. And you're living as a dying person. The gospel doesn't make sense to you anymore. It's just a preacher talking, some man talking. It never occurs to a lot of people, well, what does the Bible say while he's talking? Maybe you should take a few notes and see if what he said is true, and if it's true, believe it because it's in the Bible. I don't care what name you call yourself or what church you grew up, I don't care anything about your past. We're headed towards the finish line, and it's how you're gonna finish. How God sees you, that's gonna determine everything. And while we have time, we need to deal with these strongholds in our lives. And, and to get the enemy's holdings in our lives, we need to get those things out. But oh, Eve, hath God said you shall not surely die? That's what he said. You go to 2 Corinthians. Do we have to keep turning to all these verses? Of course you do. You know you're controlled here. We tell everybody what to do. Nobody has a mind of their own. Second Corinthians 11, look at verse three and four. This is what we learn in the New Testament about Eve. But I fear, lest by any means, and he has a lot of them, as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, It means he is crafty, artful, sly, as the devil deceived Eve through his subtlety, notice, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Notice, for if someone comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, remember he preached there before, and he's talking about those who came in after him to change everything. Paul said, for if he that comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, Uh Uh-oh, that is an enemy there. That is an enemy which ye have not received, or another gospel which you've not accepted, you might bear well with him. These guys that were coming after Paul were making it easy. They were changing things around. They kind of liked that. Paul says, I preach the truth, you count me as an enemy. These other guys come in and preach error, and you want to defend them. Where's your heart? Listen, boy, this is an amazing statement. He said, all the time I've spent with you people is for nothing. It's all vain, useless. All this time, all the time I labored, he said, in Thessalonica and in Galatia, you stay on this track and everything I've said, nothing is of any value to anybody. It's all in vain. That'd be terrible for you, especially when he was an older man now, and realized that he couldn't go back and start over. He just gets one chance to run through life to do what you're doing one time. You gotta get it right. It doesn't mean that people are gonna receive it, but you gotta get it right. Because somebody, trust me with this, and somebody, when you preach the truth, somebody's gonna receive it. Somebody's gonna get it. You can't tell. You can't, looking at a crowd of people, you can't tell who will and who won't, who has or who had not but you know somebody will because God isn't wasting our time. Somebody here is going to get it. And in the end, you're going to be rewarded for it. I would be pleased if we all did, if we all did, if we all took ourselves through deliverance and rebuked all these strongholds, pled with God to reestablish his life in us, Give me a heart to hear your word. You prayed that for, you got here, didn't you? Amen. So, the thing that's corrupted, listen, is your mind. The devil just comes with words. That's what I'm coming to you with. Listen to me. That's all God gives us. You don't go to church and watch a video. You come to church It's all about words. We give words back to him, he gives words to us. Those words either change us or they don't change us. But he did say you shall know these words and these words shall make you free. Well, the devil does the same way, he comes with words too. Only he turns his words into little pictures, little images. And you begin to see yourself in the light that he wants you to see yourself in, and that's more appealing than the light that God sees you in. As a church, it would be much easier to attract attention if we were busy, 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 and there's nothing wrong in right kind of busyness. Because people can see that and say, wow, look at that place. But they can't see the work in your heart, the peace and the joy, they can't see that. And when you're around them with peace and joy and, and contentment, they, you almost anger them. So there's something more appealing about something different than what God wants. But there is a war, folks. There is a war going on. Take King David as another form of temptation. Now, you think I'm going to talk about David at Bathsheba. Well, I'm not. There was a time in 1 Chronicles 21. 1 Chronicles 21. In verse 1, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Now, chances are that doesn't mean much to us. But Satan provoked David to number Israel. Provoked means stirring up. To stir up persons with the intention to get them to deviate. David said to Joab, the story goes, his captain. I don't like Joab, but Joab's in there. I liked Abner, but I didn't like Joab. But anyway, he said to Joab, he said, go number the people. Joab said, why? David, or whatever they would call him. You see, David wanted to know how many soldiers he's got. How powerful are we? How many troops do we have go up into Dan, the northernmost kingdom, and then go down to the south where the southernmost kingdom is, in the area of Beersheba, down in there, and count all the soldiers in between and come back and tell me how powerful we are? Joab said, we don't need that. God doesn't need a lot of people for us to win the battles we've won. Look how many times we've been outnumbered. He didn't say this. I'm saying this. David, we've been outnumbered most all of our wars. I mean, when we went around Jericho, we didn't even have to fight. And we just walked around the place, and look what God did on our behalf. Nobody could get in Jericho. We would have all been killed. But he caused the walls to fall down flat, and we didn't lose any men. We don't need to number them. So Joab did, and then God approached David and he said, what you have done was an abominable thing. Because you, like so many people, you want to know how strong you are now that you've got some success. You've got your throne. Things are pretty quiet right now. You've got a lot of enemies around, but you're a pretty good piece right now. And now your mind starts thinking, what would you do if the Moabites came in or the Amorites or some other ites and extra ticks came across the border? How would you deal with them, David. I'd go with the army. Well, how many? you don't have enough soldiers. Well, I'm sure I do. Whereas before, he would say, if they come on this side, I will pray. God will give direction and we'll defeat them, whether with few or with many. We don't need to know how big our army is. We'll just trust in the Lord. That was his life when he was victorious. So Abner goes out and numbers the army and God says to David, what you've done is sin." we'll give you three choices. And he mentions three years of famine. Your people are going to suffer greatly for three years. Or you can have three months of being hammered by your enemies. They're going to come in and do what your enemies do for three months, and you can't defeat them, can't stop them. Or you're going to have three days of pestilence, three days in which Your land is going to hurt. David said, oh, I don't want my enemies to come in. we will take the three days. And 70,000 men died. Think of it. 70,000 mothers lost a child, not because their child did something wrong or because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. 70,000 mothers are crying because the king made a bad decision. Could that be so? How about an Ai right after Jericho? How big is the, the city of Ai? That's oh, it's not much. We just take a few soldiers and go up there. All right, go with a few soldiers up there and do it. They went up there and got beat. What, 34 of them died? 34 grieving mothers? You women who are mothers? It might have been their only child, their only son. Because of Achan's sin, a Jericho, one man's sin, those men that fought and died, They didn't do anything wrong. It was this guy back here who wasn't even a soldier. It was his fault. 70,000 people died in David's time. The devil made a fool not only out of him, but destroyed 70,000 men. And the angel was over Jerusalem with the sword, hammering away at Jerusalem, and God told him to stop. That's enough. It's not always somebody's fault, because the things happen in a country. Sometimes it's a leader's fault. We're talking about sobering things here. I want you to think about that. How about Lot's wife, remember her? Terrible place, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Two angels came, they escaped. He said to her in Genesis 19, he said, don't look back, and I think in verse 26, As the thunder began to fall and the earth was shaken and Sodom and Gomorrah was being pounded into the Salt Sea, she looked back. Why did she look back? What caused her to look back? Was it not a thought? I wonder how bad it is. All your antiques are going up in flames back there. All your few friends you had and and she looked back, and she looked back. God keeps his word. She turned into a pillar of salt. We were driving down there to the Salt Sea in our last trip to Israel, it was through the Judean Wilderness, but to the Salt Sea—a rugged, rugged, rugged place. But the area where we were was like a resort; it's absolutely beautiful. And where's a big rock formation going down, and our guide said, "There's a lost wife." I told Bar, "I said she's a big old girl." I say that, a great big tall thing. But it kind of did have the semblance of a woman in a dress, but I'm sure they just named it that. But folks, when God tells us to do something, we can't, well, you know, God's good, he won't, yeah, he will. He doesn't have to. It's not necessary for Lot's wife to die, but she looked back and she died. What about Judas? Turn to John 13. What about Judas? Is there a temptation in the Bible about Judas? Judas in John 13. They washed feet in John 13. Oh, you won't find that today either. I'm not coming if you're going to do that. I never heard of such a. Yeah, you have. You read the Bible. You heard about it. Well, quit talking about it. Let's go on John 13 and verse two. And supper having ended. Now notice the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. That's mental. Look how much money you get for this. Look what you could do with the money. Look how well off you're going to be with this money. I mean, after all, how do you know he's not a fraud? He said this and said that and, you know, come on. Judas, here's your chance. Here's your chance to have something. I mean, if he's God and all that, he'll escape, you know. I mean, he does miracles. And so Judas approached him in the garden. You remember the story? He yielded to the people who tempted him, you know, the devil tempted him, and then he yielded to these people who wanted to give him 30 pieces of silver. And I think in verse 27, when sin had conceived, what did it do in verse 27? And after the sop, Satan did what? He entered into Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. He entered into him. Was there an enemy inside of him? The devil, like a roaring lion, even amongst the disciples of Jesus, found one of these guys that was vulnerable. I mean, they were all tough and all had their flaws, but this guy had a deep spiritual flaw. And the Bible says Satan entered into him. It's over. At that point, game's over. All that remains to be seen now is what the devil in Judas is going to do And he went to the garden, kissed Jesus, called him master and Lord, master, master. And then they captured Jesus because they didn't know which one was Jesus. They had to bribe somebody to tell them which one was Jesus, so they got him. Then what did Judas do? He went back, counted his 30 pieces of silver, went out and bought him a nice piece of land and built him a house and lived happily ever after. I told you in the beginning of the message, when the devil's through with you, it looks good for the moment. Using that credit card and running up that excessive debt seems to be so comfortable and so convenient, but there's a day it hammers your headpiece or it hammers on you. And here's Judas, 30 pieces of silver, and now the reality hits him. You just betrayed the Son of God, the most innocent man who ever lived the most right man who ever lived, the most perfect human being who ever lived, and you were with him for three and a half years, and you know that's true. There was not a flaw in this man. And you just sold him for 30 pieces of stinking silver. You know what he did? He went out and committed suicide. He hung himself. That was the end of his dream of his reason for being tempted. Because the devil always pays you off in counterfeit money. He makes it look so good. Him or her, that cute young, cute thing, this and that, having this, getting that, going there. Going off to college, yeah, college, whoo! Getting away from my mom and dad, go to college. I'm standing here today with scars that I've committed in college that'll be there the rest of my life. Weak, terrible, awful, awful failings. Some of the dumbest and the worst things that I've done, I did in college. I can't think of anything good about it except meeting Sister Bonnie. My junior year in college, and so on and so forth. But all the mistakes, all the vulgarities, the nastiness, the orneriness, when I got through with it, it wasn't pretty at all. It wasn't whoopy at all. It was just a hanging of the head and what a lousy person you are. And I'm looking at people in here, some of you more so than others. You've sinned in your life. you young ones not as much as some of us older ones. And we've looked at our lives at the end of our sins and thought, I am worth nothing. Now you're a candidate for repentance. And God can forgive everything you ever did. You may have memory of things, but you're not accountable for those things anymore. You're forgiven. If you have children, you can make it one of your life's dreams with your child to make sure they don't enter into the same mess that you entered into. But Judas sold his heart, sold his soul, sold his soul Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And finally, let me close with this, the temptation of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus himself. Would you turn to Matthew chapter four? The temptation of Jesus. So far, everybody we looked at failed. Everybody failed so far. David failed, Eve failed, Judas failed, there's many more. Solomon, he failed, and here's Jesus. And remember, Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, he was tempted in all points like we are. The same devil that tempts us, tempted Jesus. The same way he tempts you, he tempted him. After all, he was, in the days of his flesh, a man. Amen? Amen. He felt what you felt. He's been in the same world you've been in. He knows what it's like to hunger and to thirst, to be rejected, to be tired and weary. He knows all of that just like we know that. And because he knows what we know, the Bible says he is able to help us because he's been here. And concerning him, we're given this. Verse 1, Jesus was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. It was God's will and plan. The Spirit led him there. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward a hunger. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if you be the Son of God, just like he said, if God in Genesis 3, if that's what God said, if, 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 if if you be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Was Jesus hungry? He was hungry. Now, Eve wasn't hungry, but she sinned through eating, Jesus is going to redeem us through fasting. So he said, command these stones to be turned to bread. Good, tasty, warm, just out of the oven with a little butter on it. Woo, warm bread. Mm-mm. But he said, it is written, the word is lodged in my heart. It is my weapon, it is what I trust in, it's who I count on, and this is what it says. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. What's the devil gonna do with that? Nothing. He has no place here. So we go to the next one, verse five. And the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple. That's the high corner. And saith unto him, If you're the Son of God, cast yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, for in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. You'll be famous. You'll be looked to and talked about and admired, and people will want to come and see you and listen to you. Wow, he fell, and look, he's all right. Jesus said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. That tells us who he was, doesn't it? Verse eight, and again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of him. And saith unto them, all these things will I give thee if you will fall down and worship me. Do what the devil told Eve she could do. You could be your own God. I'll be behind it. I'll master you, but you'll do it your way if you just worship me. Don't worship God. Worship the systems of the world. Worship the work of your hands. Worship your education, your success. Talk about worship, exalt anything but God. In verse 10, Jesus said, Get thee hence, Satan. Satan. For it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve and then the devil leaveth him. How did Jesus overcome? With words, didn't he? With words. Jesus hid words in his heart. Words came from God. God said his word shall accomplish that which he pleases. So Jesus hid his father's words in his heart He grew. I mean, he learned. And when the devil came around to tempt him, the Spirit of God was there to prompt him on the use of that word in defending himself. That word becomes his sword. And he spoke the word only. And the devil had to submit to it. He had to honor it. He'll honor it in our lives. If we believe it. And so, he left him. And he took him to the pinnacle. Jesus said, it is written. So he took him to a high mountain, showed him the kingdoms of the world, which lie under the power of darkness. He said, you can be master over all of that if you'll worship me. Jesus said, I'll only worship God. Look at all the temptations. Look at all the things that were offered to him. Look who you could be. Imagine yourself with all of this money. What if you won the lottery? 500 million. Wow. You could be like Solomon. You could have 1,000 women. That's the way the world thinks. Poor soul. We struggle with one. I'm just saying. I don't struggle. But all of these things you could have. Jesus said, in effect, I hear what you're saying. I know what that could mean to any human being to rule the world. I'm only interested in serving God. Because you see, every man must die. Everybody's life will end. We don't know when, but it's going to end. And when it's over, your life did not consist in the abundance of things that you have. Your life will depend on your relationship to God. And when he said something, what did you do with it? Because we're to be ruled by his words. We're to be ruled by words. The only book we have to justify anything we believe is this book. This is a book of words. Something written down. That's all we got. You hide this word in your heart, this is how you'll fight your battles. This is how you'll pull down strongholds. We'll deal with that next week. We'll get it right. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, bless your word. I pray to the hearts of each one of us that we would measure ourselves not by other people but by the content of this book. that you would give us a heart to do things your way, to live on your terms, to be the kind of person that you brought us here to be. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet?
1: stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazareth, and I wonder how he could love of me, a sin. ¡Gracias! Sí.
0: for his yes. good.